folks. Welcome to this week's, uh, to a really special episode of Two Good Sports. Uh, for the last couple of years, or almost last couple of years, we've covered a lot of stuff to do with football. Uh, I guess we've covered more so the nuts and bolts of it, all the physicality, the athleticism, you know, the freaks that are out there, the freakish ability, heartaches, dynasties, all that sort of stuff. Heartaches, if you're like me, you're a Bronco supporter at the moment. But uh, at the moment, well, we thought it's timely to have a bit of a look at uh, other things that make our players tick, I guess, and that includes some of the social and mental factors that we probably don't cover as much as we, we should, I guess, at Two Good Sports and, and throughout. I'll go through the, uh, our special guests who've joined us today. And uh, firstly, Gay. Uh, we have Gay O'Dwyer. Gay works in the field of social emotional intelligence. She's a peak performance coach. Her expertise is communication of the mind, particularly flow state, and she'll go over that a little bit later with us. Uh, and that's more commonly known as getting in the zone. Gay combines the skills in neuro-linguistics programming and behavioural profiling to assist her clients reach higher levels of social emotional intelligence to achieve success beyond where they thought possible uh, with a champion mindset. Thanks for joining us today, Gay. Steve, thanks for inviting me on. And right uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing from the other boys as well. Great. Uh, also along today, uh, another one of our special guests, Cliff Batley. Cliff's a registered clinical psychologist with over 25 years of working in physical and mental health. You must have started when you were about six, Cliff. <laughs> You've got to give me a few raps later too. If you wrap later. Having things happen, he's helped thousands achieve their long-term uh, long positive change. He works with individuals and groups uh, conducting powerful private therapy, targeting long-term sustainable results. Cliff's work with many high-performance uh, athletes throughout uh, uh, you know, various sports uh, to help them achieve their objectives, importantly, off the field as well as on the field. Uh, he's also written, and I've had the pleasure of uh, not only reading this, purchasing this hugely popular and acclaimed book, uh, Bullyproof Your Child. We'll have the link, uh, we have the link on our website, so please do yourself a favour and check that out. It is really worth reading for a parent and even non-parents to get a bit of a, a greater mindset about what we can do to help our kids out there. So that is uh, Bullyproof Your Child, a hand, uh, handbook for raising a child with superhero self-esteem. So do check that one out. Great for, thanks for joining us, uh, Cliff. Great having you Thank along. Thank you mate. and hello everybody. We also have uh, David Shillington joining us today. Uh, uh, David's played over 200 NRL games. I think it was 214, my last research there, David, something like that. Uh, eight origins for the mighty Queensland, 14 tests for Australia. Uh, he's the CEO of, of Head Trainer. It's a company dedicated and committed to wellbeing and mental health. Uh, Head Trainer, they utilize the connection of sport as a vehicle to drive positive outcomes in the workplace, community groups, and sporting clubs. David, thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be part of such a meaningful uh, conversation, so it should be good. I like how you've transformed your office to make it look like a car too, David. Not many blokes do that. It's not a background. Uh, I got stuck in commute and I, I couldn't pull out on you, so um, I've committed uh, to do it from the car. No, thanks very much, mate. The beauty of Zoom. Thanks very much. All right, our next guest today, uh, folks, is uh, Stephen Egg. He's had a decorated boxing career. It's yielded an Australian title, Oceana, uh, Silver, uh, uh, Arafura Games, Bronze, National Golden Gloves as an amateur, and, and a Queensland title as a pro. Uh, Stephen's trained with Australia's top boxing coaches over a period of time. He's also, uh, he's worked in the fitness industry now as a boxing coach uh, for 20, over 25 years. And Stephen's established a much respected matrix boxing gym uh, 
in 2005, 15 years ago. It offers an environment where anyone can come and learn about boxing uh, and feel the benefits of the fitness that it creates and also the accomplishment of learning uh, the, the technical aspects of it as well. He firmly believes boxing can improve their lives, not just physically, but mentally as well. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. Thanks for having me, mate. It's a pleasure. All right, I'm going to dump, jump straight into it. Anyway, the first topic I'd like to explore today, folks, is the intense media pressure uh, a lot of people have, but it's particularly we're going to focus today on NRL players. The pressures they're under compared to earlier days. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing young men in situations where, uh, which are spread through social media. We're seeing it probably, unfortunately, every week or two now. Many times they're fuelled by alcohol or other stimulants. I want to ask, first of all, Gay, is this a case of too much time in their hands, not having the mechanisms to cope, lack of guidance? What are the factors and also what are your views on it, Gay? So my views and beliefs around it, firstly, are not going straight to social media or Instagram or Facebook being the issue or the problem. It really comes back to source. And what I mean by that, it comes back to the athlete. So what's their standard of self like? Anyone that has a high standard of self or a high standard of excellence, and we know the NRL players that do, they don't tend to succumb to those things and they certainly um, don't become the demise of social media. So for me, a, it's looking at the emotional fitness of the athlete uh, and then it's looking at it's not a decision problem, it's a focus problem for me. So when you're focused, you make good decisions. When you're not focused, you make poor decisions. That's how I view it and that's the way I work with my athletes in terms of social media, self-excellence. Yeah, no, thanks, Gay. David, you like to comment on this? David, you um, obviously were in that bubble. I guess maybe the intensity has changed a little bit with the, the, the increased social media, I guess, particularly in the last few years. Yeah, I certainly agree with Gay in that uh, you, know, you have to make the right choices. Uh, I think a big influence is uh, the senior leaders at clubs too and the culture they set. Uh, they're, they're, they're a huge factor in how the younger players they learn how to behave themselves and, and what the right and wrong things are and are to do. Uh, but I think it's, it's a really tough challenge for the NRL because you know, we're talking about the players by nature who are risk takers. They want to push boundaries. Uh, they want to push past beyond pain and fatigue and injuries. And that's the things uh, we admire them a lot. Uh, but obviously when they're off the field, um, they need to start recognising those boundaries and, and not push those limits and, and respect laws and rules. So uh, it, it is a tough job to um, teach them you know, how to flick mm. that switch when they get on the field, flick it, flick it off when they get off the field. And, and I know the NRL are doing a lot of work in that space. Uh, yeah. But I think uh, a bit more work with those coping strategies, as Gabe mentioned, could be answer for them. Scott Sattler mentioned a couple of shows back that it was important when he was a young bloke to go and uh, to, to locate someone that, was, that, that he respected as a young man when he first came onto the grade. And uh, that helped him, he said, in his, in his early years. And he said it was a full circle at the end where when he was at Penrith at the end of his career, he had young men doing the same to him, I guess, looking up to him and, and asking for a bit of guidance. How important is that? Absolutely. And uh, that, yeah, those senior players, um, when, when you're a young player coming through the system, you just look up to those senior guys and go, I'm going to train the way you do. I'm going to behave the way you do, prepare for games. Um, same level of professionalism because mm. they are where you want to be. Uh, yep. So they're the way for you. Not wanting to let them down either, I suppose. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of pressure on, and responsibility on the clubs themselves. Uh, as a player, 
generally more worried about what the club thinks about you rather than what the general public or the law might think about you. So if someone gets in trouble for drink driving, for example, um, they'll be less concerned about the um, issue with the police as they will be concerned about the issue with their club. Uh, so I think there's a big responsibility for the clubs to make sure they discipline the players right um, and, they, and they keep them accountable because if they sweep those issues under the rug, it just creates a bigger beast, doesn't it? Sure, yep. Cliff, how much of this pressure is intensified in living in this COVID bubble? This is unprecedented, obviously, and especially considering the recent breaches that we're seeing at the moment and we'll probably continue to see. The COVID bubble's an anomaly, isn't it? Because we've never seen it in our life before. So you've got to... And I agree with Gay and David when they talk about choices. Um, the COVID bubble then adds another volume of pressure because you're taking kids who are earning extremely high wages and are living in a bubble of, you know, relative fame in Australia and maybe they're not playing all of a sudden. So the identity that they're, they're enjoying, the, the mainstream of their identity is suddenly taken away from them. You've got, you know, I agree with you, Gay, that the source has to be solid at that time. If you don't have that base, then chances are those kids at that age, they want to get out and they want to socialise. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's age restricted either. I think that we've seen in the press that it's not age, you know, defined. Mm. I think Dave also made a good point. Dave, look, you're speaking from experience. You've been on the, the, the receiving end of doing something that an everyday citizen does, yet you were treated entirely different by the press um, in that exact same situation. It's, it's not fair and it's not just. Now, you couple in unfairness, injustice, you take what they said about the source not being solid, you take away the mainstream identity of what these kids are living off, that's a rep recipe for a volcanic eruption at some stage. And if you're not strong, if you don't have that, that base, then um, you know, the cracks will appear and they'll become canyons soon enough. Yeah, thanks, Cliff. David, is this something you think as a young David Shillington, when you're first coming onto the, uh, into the uh, grade and as a 17 year old, something you would have struggled with? Yeah, um, as Cliff was saying, like being a young person, you wanna get out there and socialize. Uh, sometimes you might not realize um, the importance of things um, as you'll do later in life. Uh, so it's quite easy for me now as a 37 year old to go, what's wrong with these young 20 year old players? You know, they've got a world of opportunity ahead of them. Getting paid so well, do what you need to do. Um, and the reality is all your mates around you are having um, 18th birthdays and 21sts and um, when they are allowed to go out to nightclubs and do things um, any night of the week, they can. They can enjoy a drink um, and a barbecue on a Monday night if they want to. But uh, for players, um, you know, they have to usually sustain for alcohol all, all week and then they get one opportunity on a Saturday night after a game and, and let their hair down and sometimes, you know, it's a bit overwhelming for them. So I think um, I'm not trying to exonerate them of all their responsibilities or anything, but... Um, I also don't want to forget what it's like to be a young person again. Yeah. Gay, before we move on to the next topic, um, any, any further thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, what uh, both Cliff and David said is really valid. Um, I would probably, if, you know, if I was working with a team or I'm working with athletes currently and COVID has impacted them, it's around, you know, what meaning are we going to give it? Because we're all a part of it. However, what's the meaning that we're going to give it? What's the meaning that your NRL club are going to give it? Are you going to look at it that it's um, in the way or are you going to look at it maybe like it's on the way? It's here and how are we going to manage it and how are you going to work best with it? 
Um, mm. And I think that's the way that, you know, the, the definition that you give it is going to be how you're going to respond to it, how you're going to deal with it and get on with it, really. Mm. And I suppose, too, Gay, is that strong network that you have, not only as a family, but if you are sending your child, and there's still children, 17, 16, 17-year-old to go and embark on a professional career, I guess you're going to look into uh, what mechanisms, what, uh, the best for your child in a certain club as well. Some have a greater reputation than others. And what David was saying as well, um, there are certain athletes that will make a really will make a stronger sacrifice, and that's just the, that's just who that person is and that that athlete is. So mm. yeah, choice and uh, you know giving yeah. it a, giving it a different meaning and accepting it and maybe not seeing it as permanence. It's a time now, um, and how are you going to manage it? How are you going to respond? Thanks, guy. Absolutely, please, yeah. It's, um, you know, I listen to everything and I agree with all, all the guys there. And um, But, you know, it, it is does come down to support, especially with uh, the young kids. I mean, if they haven't got that support of family or a mentor, um, it, it does become hard for them when they reach the testosterone and the drinking and the going out and partying. It, it is hard for them to make decisions. So um, that support base is really important. Um, accountability is really important. Uh, and, and consequences are really important. And I think in this era, consequences have sort of gone by the wayside a little bit. Um, too many people have too many rights. Um, so, you know, having that support system is no good just having consequences. If you don't have the support there to let them understand why those choices are wrong and why the outcomes are happening the way they are, um, it, it is hard for some of these uh, young athletes, um, especially in COVID, which, as they said, is unprecedented. Stephen, you've, you've um, you know, played rugby league and you've had a, a long career in boxing and training as well. Obviously, the discipline that comes alongside boxing in particular. Uh, do you find that the, a lot of players these days, I guess, either during their career or after their career, returning to boxing uh, or returning to boxing? How important is that or how much can that help some, some players who are looking for you know, some form of outlet and also you know, away from the destructive behaviour? Yeah, look, I mean, boxing is a great tool for so many sports and in particular rugby league players. Um, you know, in my opinion, rugby league's the, the toughest physical team sport in the world, you know, and, and boxing's the, the, the toughest, you know, other sport in the world, in my opinion, as well. You know, it's been proven statistically, you know, the boxers are the fittest, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, you know, um, I, I, you know, there's a lot of flack on football players coming to boxing, but I, I love football players as boxers, you know. They make the perfect boxers. They play the toughest sport in the world. They know how to compete with injuries. And, you know, if they played an elite level, you know, they know how to train hard and push through those tough times. Um, and all the players these days have just got remarkable skills. You know, look at people like Sonny Bill Williams that can go from league to union to mm. boxing. So I actually think they make uh, great fighters, um, you know. So it's a great crossover, not just for fitness, but the mental side because you learn lessons in boxing that you don't always learn in football because it's a team sport. Um, you know, boxing is a team. We've got a very good tight team that help each fighter, you know, progress um, each fight and throughout their career. Without that team, they're not going to make it. But it is an individual sport. And when, you know, when, when you hop through those ropes with just that other bloke, in front of you, there's nowhere else to re to rely on. There's nowhere to hide. You can't sit on the blind side and and um, have a rest for a little bit, if you know what I mean. So there are some lessons they can learn as an individual about their own individual choices that they make and the consequences to that, and not letting uh, anyone else take the fall for them. 
Right. Steve, how, what about yourself? How do, you, how do you go about preparing yourself to make such sacrifices, a younger Stephen compared to now? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, I, my whole career from under nines to A grade in rugby league was was uh, guiding towards, you know, playing professional rugby league. That's all I ever wanted to do as, as a nine-year-old, um, right through to playing A grade, you know. It didn't quite go that way. Had some injuries and took up boxing and um, sort of fell into boxing, really, and, and found my love of it. Um, but, you know, I boxing is an unforgiving sport and there's some really serious consequences to making bad choices. Uh, and the biggest thing for me is preparation, you know, yeah. and that preparation, whether it's, it's rugby league or boxing, is paramount if you're not physically prepared and mentally prepared. Um, and that's not just for the sport. It's the topic that we're talking about today and that's outside life as well. And mm. you know, even more so in this, in this day and age because of social media, you know, mm. but at the end of the day, each person, an athlete has to put their hand up and be accountable for their actions. And that's why I think the culture of your club, whether it's a boxing club uh, or a football club, is really, really important. Um, you know, the consequences they set to your actions and the consequences can be good too. You choose something good, you get a good consequence. And that's what these, these athletes need to understand. You know, so a good culture and a good club shows them that there's good consequences, that they get rewarded, uh, but there are bad consequences for their mm. bad choices. They yep. need to be right from wrong. Yeah, and I guess they're the ones that are publicised more so. Yeah, 100%. Media doesn't like publicising good news. Something that I think all players would struggle with, um, and we're seeing it at the moment with the Warriors, uh, they're away from home and their family. It's a bit of uncertainty. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the players have young children, you know, uh, babies. There's no real plan. There's no concrete plan to return home at any, uh, at any real time. Um, Cliff, we'll start with you. Can you discuss what you would think the psychological impact it would be i know that's a difficult one again because it's unprecedented but the, the sacrifice that the warriors um have no doubt done and they're, and they're doing it at the moment kind of ironic that you ask me this question first mm. because like you steve i started as an under seven year old and with aspirations and i made it to the roosters junior squad at 15 you know when dinosaurs were still running across the sydney sports stadium um, got injured quite a few times and ended up getting shifted over to New Zealand and took up a rugby union career over there and was heavily involved in rugby union for another, you know, over a decade in New Zealand. So I've, I've had the luxury of working really closely with, you know, I was born in New Zealand, so I was very fortunate with New Zealand families, New Zealand culture, and to understand the importance of family or what you call whanau in New Zealand in the model of Pacific Island growth for kids. Now, you know, we've got a, a massive disconnect in New Zealand and Australia at the moment because there is such a bloodline back to heritage in New Zealand and culture, such a, a volume of pride, but it's, it's called pride handed down or wisdom handed down through generations in New Zealand. However, in the last generation, we've seen this, you know, sudden upsurge of movement to Australia, you know, almost an exodus from New Zealand. It's a very expensive place to live. And they've gone through a, a cultural identity crisis almost. When you remove these kids from their families, they don't, unless they've done really well, as Stephen pointed out, unless they've been raised well and they've been given consequences around how you know, tribal law works and wisdom is handed down, they don't do well. And, you know, you couple that with socialisation and alcohol and you've got some pretty big, hefty you know, boys in men's bodies who, let, who are let loose and they want to have fun. 
And then you can't, they're not bad kids, they're kids, but they're away from their family and family law in New Zealand is quite strong. Um, you know, their, their physical justice can be quite um, immense and the shame around this, um, you know, disgracing your family is very strong. And, you know, Dave said before, you're worried about more about what the press will think of you or what the club think of you. Over there, you're worried more about what your dad is going to do. And so suddenly you've got them away. And <laughs> that's, um, they want to have fun. And you mm. can't blame them. They're kids. And I also over here was working very closely with one of the NRL footballers from one of the NRL teams who had broken the law and been caught flagrantly doing the wrong thing. The consequence that the club published in the media was not reflective at all of the reality. The consequence they published in the media was he's going to do this many hours and volunteer here and help here and do that. I'm going to categorically tell you he went to one meeting for a charity and signed some jerseys. Now, that was his consequence. And his attitude in there was, I was just having fun. I was just having fun. The problem is every kid in Australia who wants to play NRL is looking at these guys. Now, on the one end, you're saying to these guys, you need to behave like this. On the other end, we're saying, well, what, because they're a sportsman, they should suddenly behave like a different adult. There should suddenly be more responsibility upon them. If you're not graded into that that way, if your family's not teaching you that and the club is not reinforcing it and you don't have that congruity, congruence between the two, how would you be expected to know it? And if you don't have that consequential learning system along the way, what you've got are kids with an underdeveloped brain. We all know how we don't, you know, we do silly things when we're young. Our prefrontal cortex is not developed until our mid twenties, 26. So we don't actually behave in a way where we assess the consequences of our behaviors. That's why parents are required to put rewards and consequences in place. When you don't have that at that age and you want to have fun, you're going to have fun. And you're not going to be thinking, this is a really dumb idea. I could end up in the paper or I could disgrace my family or my club could lose. Or You're not thinking that at all. You're just mm. thinking there's fun on the table and I want to have some. So those guys are really susceptible, not just because they're away from home, but because of the cultural lineage and the support system that would normally be in place that is really strong is out. You're pulling rugs out from under the kids there. I, I suppose, too, when you, you what we the media does, I guess, is um, make... Uh, heroes, I guess, of 21 and 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds, fantastic players, but perhaps uh, that hero worship or idolising them is not so wise at times, I guess, for all of them. Gay, if we can just pass uh, pass it on to you, uh, from from what I uh, from what Cliff just mentioned there, how do you go about this with with an athlete, with a young athlete who's pining to go home, but is 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 in a difficult position of if she does not, he or she does not uh, continue to uh, achieve where there's needed to be. Obviously, they, 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 they could lose a career. They um, they could lose sponsorship. How do you go about this double-edged sword? Uh, well, Cliff and David both said it. Um, if, if there's cultural dysfunction, it's going to be pretty challenging. Really, in that, in, you know, to sort of... To, to, when, when you hear Cliff, when he talks about the consequences or non-consequences were given, and as David said... They're, they're so fearful of how their club's going to be, really, that it has got to come from the top and it has to be a functional club. Otherwise, uh, there's no games going to be won. Certainly no premierships are going to be won. It's just not enough consistency. You know, consistency equals trust. 
And those boys need trust. If, if they don't have their family, they need it more than ever for their club. So for me, um, I think one of the greatest things New Zealand have to tap into are the All Blacks. Um, when you think of the book by James Kerr Legacy, I'm not sure there is a better written book. With no disrespect to you, Cliff, because I haven't read your book. However, when you talk about... Um, awesome book. Yeah, when you talk about functionality and when you talk about mindset and respect and when you talk about success, it's right there. And if the, maybe they can borrow and model some of that because, to be honest, it's so powerful and uh, it's incredible. So, just a thought. Can I add to that? You've really touched on my heart now. I didn't think we were allowed to talk about union. I've worked directly with a number of All Blacks over the years and that book, Legacy, is a Bible that they come time and time and time again they are drilled into them the saying from that book and that is our values determine our character and our character determine our values and they speak of values as laws that you decide to uphold and if you do you are rewarded with mana or strength and if you break them do not expect that you would expect the consequence but the consequence they talk about is shame and defeat. Um, and that, that book, it's fantastic you, you mentioned that book because it's, it's a cultural iconic book, isn't it? And I think the other thing about that book, it brings you back to responsibility. Like, you know, they say, what's my role? Like, what's my responsibility on the field? What's my responsibility to the club? What's going to happen if I don't do that? And what's going to happen if I do? Because it also all of a sudden brings back the realisation, you know what, appreciate your job. Like, it's pretty amazing. Mm. You, you are a paid professional athlete. And, yes, it does come with, with other things. However, most people would give their right leg, most ordinary people, to be a professional athlete and to be paid, whether it's Absolutely. COVID, whether it's not. Uh, yeah. So it, it's coming back to having it some gratitude and, and really like, wow, you know, this is an awesome role. Like, I love being an athlete. And yes, it comes with responsibility. However, I've got the maturity and hopefully the club that will take me to the next level. Thanks, Guy. Look, um, David, in a, in a recent article, you mentioned um, that a legend of the game uh, basically uh, gave you counsel and suggested when you were doing it a bit tough uh, that you um, go and see someone who can help you. You were probably dealing with it like a lot of young, young guys do or young athletes do. Can you share that with us? Yeah, for sure. Uh, when I was a young rooster, uh, literally going for the Sydney Roosters as a young fella, uh, my coach Brad Pitley just came up to their training one day and and uh, said, you know, Shilo, how are you going, mate? You sort of seem a bit withdrawn group and not like yourself. Uh, how you handle the pressures of being an NRL uh, player? And I sort of shrugged it off and said, oh, fine, mate. Yep, all good. And he said, um, well, you know, it's okay if, if I'm handling it very well. Uh, you've thought about seeing a seeing a counselor. And I was like, a counselor? You mean talk about my emotions? Um, six foot. 515 kilo front row for the roosters. I don't need to talk about mine. Thanks very much. And then he sort of blew me away when he goes, no, why don't you, why don't you see, this, see the guy that I see? And I was like, the guy you see, but you're Brad Fittler. You've got life sorted. And he goes, yeah, I don't have any big things going on, but I'd like to check in with him from time to time and just get things off my chest so they don't build up. So I thought, well, if it's good enough for him, it's, it's good enough for me. And I went and saw uh, his counselor, Angus, uh, in Centennial Park and went to his unit uh, great man, Angus, but um, I was still a bit apprehensive and uh, and he sat me down on the couch as you do and he said, so what brings you here today, Dave? And I shrugged it off again and said, oh, nothing, I'm fine. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's a trained professional and, and he knows how to have these conversations and he, and he got me talking. 
uh, and it felt good talking. And I kept talking and talking and about an hour later, he was tapping on his watch going, all right, mate, well, I've got other people to see. You gotta go now. And I was like, wait, wait, I've got more to say. <laughs> so um, for someone who thought, you know, they're too big and strong to, uh, to go see a counselor, they wouldn't get anything out of it. Uh, I just love getting some things off my chest. I've been turning them around in my head, you know, for weeks and months uh, without any success. Uh, but as I spoke them out, they all sort of fell into place and, and it made a lot of sense. So, um, yeah, I've been a massive advocate uh, for seeking professional help, um, no matter how tough you are. Uh, and, uh, and I strongly recommend it uh, for everyone. And I guess that's the genesis too of, of Head Trainer Day. Yeah, so that's what I've gone to um, business doing this now and uh, using those stories. And I, and, and I like telling that story about um, Freddie as my coach because it sort of um, highlights the role of leaders and managers um, in the workplace, let alone just a sporting club, uh, that um, you, know, you can disarm people and make people feel comfortable and set the right example. Because uh, sometimes people might feel like they've got things to prove and, and they have to be full of invincible and, and put on a strong face all the time. Uh, but if you let people know that it's okay to, to not be okay, uh, then yep. uh, I think it does everyone a world of good. One thing that shows that, you know, obviously, uh, um, in the past, I think for some reason, us men particularly, we thought it was a, you know, a show of weakness. It's obviously, we, we know now that it's, it's the, you know, the complete opposite, you know, a bit of self-realisation and um, getting back on track. Stephen, if um, we can go to you, uh, you know, just recently, um, I, I contacted yourself and I, I saw a, a video that you had posted, and it's uh, it's got a it's gone it's very very uh, well watched video on uh, YouTube and social media. Uh, a different type of thing, I guess, um, to Stevens, but it has similarities. That there was a behaviour, I guess, that you identified, and one of you know probably hundreds of thousands of Australians, uh, and that was. Um, something that you thought you could improve on as well. Do you want to share that with us, mate? Yeah, mate. Um, I, uh, the use of the word, um, let, let me just start with, I'm not part of this group uh, of easily offended generation. Um, you know, I still take the piss. Um, I probably still say some inappropriate things and, you know, as a normal Aussie larrikin, you know, having a laugh. Um, so uh, there are words, though, um, that can cause hurt to people um, and I'm aware of that when it comes to being sexist or racist um, you know and there was a certain word that I'd been using since high school to be honest and uh, I used to write it off um, in a certain way but a, a good friend of mine who's a, another boxing coach uh, and an adventure guy who's um, put up a post uh, about the word retard um, and uh, I, I, I relate that to um, any kind of, you know, spastic retard, spaz, spazzo, retard, you know, I guess um, The Hangover, a quite popular movie, sort of popularised the word retard in a funny, comical way. And, I mean, it is comical. I mean, comedians are irreverent and they take the piss out of anything because it's good to have a laugh. So I'm not really talking about that, but his, his post was about, um, you know, his son was born disabled, so he had no choice being disabled and the clinical term for a disabled child back in the day was retard or spastic um, so uh, he just described his emotions when he's out with his son in places and the way people react sometimes you know because he's a 12 13 year old kid who's going up to four five year olds talking about spider-man 
you know, and um, they think that's weird and then parents come over and sort of, you know, usher them away and, you know, that's quite hurtful, hurtful for a parent to see when it's their, their boy just trying to have fun and say hello to someone in his way. Um, but, you know, when he sees or hears people and he's, he's, you know, done it himself before he had children, um, you know, if someone trips over and you say, ah, oh, you're a retard, um, or, you know, says something silly and they're calling him a spastic, you know, when his son had no choice to be disabled um, and when you're talking about someone in a derogatory way um, and demeaning them by using that word, um, it's quite hurtful for him. Um, he wasn't on there trying to tell people to stop saying it. He was just expressing how he felt about it. And it really struck a chord with me because uh, if anyone who knows me personally knows how much I used, used to use the word spastic to describe people that said or did something that was silly or I didn't agree with or was wrong. Um, and, you know, I used to just write it off as, well, if you tripped over and I called you spastic, the spastic will trip over. Um, but I understand now the hurt that it can cause. And this is a personal thing for me. I'm not, I'm not, you know, getting up anyone else for using that word. I'm just trying to set an example by not using those words anymore to describe people. Um, and for myself, I just came up with a penalty a simple consequence if I use that word that um, my penalty at my gym for not bringing a towel or leaving things behind is uh, 30 burpees. So every time I use the word spastic retard or any of those um, different uh, versions of it, I have to do 30 burpees. Um, now in the, in the first four days after I set that goal for myself, I'd racked up um, 330 burpees. Um, I didn't realise how ingrained it was in my system to say it naturally. And uh, so I then changed it to whenever I said it, I had to perform the 30 there and then. I couldn't bank them and do them at another time out of sight of anyone. If I was in a shopping centre and I said it, then I'd have to drop and do 30 right there and then. So, um, yeah, but I'm going all right. I, I thought I was going to struggle a little bit more, but I'm, I'm really aware of it now. Um, I find myself pulling myself up. Um, I still have that instinct to say it, but the words don't actually come out of my mouth. I'm aware of it. And, and that's the biggest thing in changing a habit. Um, any habit <coughs> is, um, you know, being aware of it first and foremost and then making that conscious decision to change it. So um, I'm having some success. It's been about a week and a half since I've said it and um, I'm still aware of when I want to say it. Um, so as I said, it, it's a personal thing for me. Um, if people see what I'm, I'm doing and, and maybe agree with it. And I mean, there's plenty of offensive words out there. Um, they might jump on board and, and do the same thing. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things. Each individual person has the choice whether they're offended by something you say or not. You know, and this uh, generation of easily offended people, I think they forget that, you know, if someone wants to come up to me and, and racially abuse me, you know, because I'm a half-caste, well, it's up to me how I respond to that. Yeah. Well, listen, Stephen, I, I, I've seen you fight before, so you'd have to be a pretty, you'd have to have a death wish to come up and say anything not, not very nice to you. But listen, what you've done there is, is, um, is admirable. And I think that makes it even more admirable, as you've mentioned it to me before, that you're not, you're not advocating it for other people to do. I think it's just by people seeing that everyone can, I think most people can reflect and go, you know what, I may say that phrase or have done that in the past. I think it's a timely reminder for us and it's something you should be commended for. Thank you. 
Uh, look, I know we've got to wrap up then. I know that David is about to go to another meeting. Really, really quickly, guys, this is something I wanted to bring up um, to, uh, firstly, David. We, Adrian Bowers, a little while ago, was on our show, and he mentioned, talking about mental health, he said when he retired, there was a big hole that just was never there before, and it took him a while to sort of find something to replace that. David, how did you deal with that? Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting period uh, because you go straight from school into the NRL system as a 17-year-old and and uh, and you become an NRL player and it's very uh, public sort of role and it's it's how you identify and middlehood. And so when I retired, I was and it would always been referred to as um, you know, David Shillington, the NRL front rower or David Shillington, the Titans player or the Maroons player, but whatever it is, that's my the way I've been identifying all these years. And I remember it really struck me um, about three months after I retired, I actually got a job with the NRL as a project officer. So I thought, oh, well, this is my role now, I'm a project officer. And, then, and I went down to Coffs Harbour for this mental health awareness day. And this lady, a chaperone was taking me around and I was, I was meeting all these young kids. And every time I got to these young kids, the lady would introduce me, oh, kids, this is David, the NRL front rower. And uh, the kids go, whoa, do you play for the front? Do you play in the NRL, do you? And I, and I started going, yeah, yeah. Oh no, um, not really. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> and um, and it took me a while to adjust and recalibrate to what I said to people because I thought I'm not being truthful here if I'm saying I'm an NRL front row. And I told the lady, I said, look, it's not a big deal, but um, you not introduce me as an NRL player anymore. <laughs> and uh, so I had to, I went through this period of a good you know, six to twelve months of just sort of recalibrating and reassessing who I was. Uh, you know, thankfully I was already a dad then and, and a husband. <laughs> I had lots of other things I could identify by. And I was also really lucky that I went into a role with the NRL, uh, working in the mental health space that gave me a real sense of, sort of purpose and, and value. Uh, because you know, when you play a uh, sport like that and you have to push through all that pain and, and through the injuries and regardless of how you feel, what the is like, you really got to be connected and uh, to what's doing. So, um, so yeah, thankfully I, I worked on my identity, uh, had a great role with the NRL that had purpose and, and that got me through not too bad. Cool. Cliff, do you do you um, deal with that often with with uh, some of the high performance athletes that you've uh, you've helped? You know, initially that's what it was. Was I was dealing with Olympic Games athletes, NRL players. I'm now uh, we're on the cusp of a new disorder in the next what they call Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders called PPDD, and it's Post Professional Depressive Disorder. And what we're starting to see is not just athletes, but all humans, especially white-collared professional males, significant quantity, are retire spending their whole life looking forward to retiring at 60, not calculating that their average lifespan, a commonly expected woman's lifespan in Australia is now 95. The person who's going to live to be 130 has already been born. So we've got we're retiring with half our life again and nothing to do. So it's not just athletes. This is an identity crisis that we're suffering. We're, we're outliving our careers. Now, in professional athletes, they're getting younger and younger too because we're starting them earlier. Right? Look, at, look at the average age of a professional golfer in the last 20 years is almost halved. Look at the average age of a first-grade NRL player in the last 30 years. Look at what happened with NRL when it became a professional sport. And we're bringing kids out of high school into professional sports. So their careers are over, as David pointed out, they're getting injured earlier, they're burning out, and there's someone hot on their tails. 
there's nothing. There's no. There's nothing. That, that's what they've always been. As David said, there I go up front up. I've, I've made it into this, you know, professional job. Yet there's my badge. Yep. He has to actually ask someone, because our culture is well. That's who you were. That's what you mm. are. Mm. Um, now all of a sudden I'm not that. And if that's all I had, it's not fun laying bricks and you know finishing that and going laying bricks or you know what one of my clients an ex NRL player is out there at the moment putting leaflets in letterboxes, walking and putting leaflets in letterboxes. He's not qualified. He, his reading and writing isn't mm. even that great. And that's what he's doing for a job. And he's majorly depressed. Um, I think I said something before, If we could, this is really important, about the club's responsibility and about that culture from the head of the club down and about the, the culture of different clubs. I've had the luxury of working with various NRL clubs. She is 100% right. A fish rots, rots or is fresh from the head. And club culture has a lot to answer for. Um, David, I'd love to talk to you privately about your experience during that process because you played Roosters, you played Raiders, you played, so you played in three different states. I'd love to talk to you privately about that. Sounds good. Gary, if I can just pass on you, I understand that we have to wrap up and then I'll quickly go to Stephen. Uh, going on to what Cliff said, when, a, when an athlete retires, they've, they've, a lot of the time they've become they're prodigies from a young age. You're hearing, as Cliff mentioned, sometimes they're 12 year old, they're identified. They've had the adulation, they've, uh, they've basically, um, they've never had a normal life, I guess, for want of a better word. Uh, they've never had to go to the workplace or anything like that. And they've, uh, they've had a large group of friends. That, uh, I'm not sure how long all of those friends will be there. Then all of a sudden they're, they're thrust into the, the normal world, some prematurely, you know, with um, lack of form, uh, injury, cultural reasons, whatever it may be, at a, at a, at a, when they're not expecting it, they may be able to survive on that little bit of stardom for a little while, but all of a sudden they're on their own game. Yeah, and it's incredibly tough if they've been cushioned from not being exposed to having a look at their cross-contextual skills. Like, I loved what David said, you know, he was identified as a front rower, however, he's in this new position. And I think it's so important. It, is, it just seems very basic. However, if you only know what you don't know. So for me, it'd be like encouraging players to know what are my strengths and skills outside of this? And something David said, like, what am I actually passionate about? because the reality is this isn't going to be forever. And how can I continue to expand and grow outside of my game and my role that's, that's, that's here now? So for me, flexibility and adaptability of the mind, not only are they key and crucial during your time as an athlete, they're crucial outside when you start developing into an adult. And if you want to continue to grow, adaptability and flexibility are going to be forever. Um, if you want to keep evolving, mm. 70% of lost productivity in the workplace is due to a low social emotional intelligence, a low emotional fitness. If your workplace is on the field and you're operating at 30%, you're not winning. Once you get out into the real world, if you're operating at 30%, you're not really winning or growing as a human being. So adapting flexibility. I know it's a much bigger issue and what Cliff's saying, it's not only that, artificial intelligence is coming in and by 2030, artificial intelligence is going to dominate. So Really, it's key for every single one of us, like Cliff was saying, beyond an athlete, to know how are we going to shape up and how are we going to thrive and survive when artificial intelligence comes in as well. Stephen, we'll just wrap up with you. Uh, Gay mentioned the adaptability and the flexibility in your career uh, as a, uh, first of all, in your football, but mostly in boxing, I guess you've now 
at that age where, with your career, I guess that adaptability and flexibility allowed you to sort of, I guess, transition into the coaching side and the mentoring side of your sport? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you have, it's a hard, it's hard after a career in any sport, you know, um, and the fight sports are probably a little bit different to most sports as well. And it's a really, really hard sport to give up. It was, you know, I've just turned 46 and, you know, a few years ago, I was still trying to get my injuries right to get back in there and have another fight because you just can't get that anywhere else, you know. And um, my love of competing um, really, you know, that's why you see all these ex-fighters coming back and fighting all the time. So mm. I think um, for me, community uh, and purpose are, are big things, you know. You talk about community, you can talk about a club and the culture at the club. Um, and the, cl- the club, if you're talking on a footy side, they really need to look after their own, you know, and that's what communities are about. So um, if you look at a community or a club, you know, you should be looking after your family, you know, and they're your family. Uh, my gym, uh, we're, we're growing quite rapidly, but it's a community, it's a club, it's not, it's not a gym. It's not a it's not a gym gym. It's a club. It's a community based club. Um, people go there. It's their second home. They got support there. They've got purpose. You know. And if you don't have purpose, if I'm not giving my fighters some type of purpose, not just their careers, you know, they have to learn lessons that help them in their life. You know, I try to include them in the club uh, after their careers. Some choose not to um, for personal reasons. Um, you know, um, but you have to have an outlet at the end of a career. That's the club's um, job to do that. You know, you're taking these kids, as you said, out of high school straight into a professional career where they're earning good money, where they're in the limelight, and then all of a sudden an injury can take it away like that, you know, or when they finish their career, and most of them are finishing it, you know, early 30s at best, you know, and, you know, you're living to, as you said, you know, as uh, Cliff said, you're living till you're 90 these these days, mm. you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it really is about the community looking after, whether it's a, a local community, whether it's a club or whether it's your own family looking after their own. And it emphasises, as all of you have said and we've talked about, that grounding that you receive at a young age, how important it is and to understand the consequences, that, you know, positive and, and at times that, that kick up the backside as well. Appreciate you being here today on our show. It's been really insightful. We thank you for being on. Uh, do check out uh, the links there for um, David, Gay, Cliff and Stephen. And uh, also Stephen's uh, uh, clip you will see there as well as we'll have a li- uh, link to that as well. But in the interim, guys, in the meantime, thank you very much. I know you're all very, very busy and uh, we hope to uh, have a chat again in the, in the near future. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot, Steve, mate. Doing a great job, mate. Keep it up.